This is Ross Payton with Roblin Public Radio. This is RBBR episode 122. It takes a village to carry my inventory. Uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, running communities and settlements and whatnot in uh, role-playing games. Can't How imagine is. where this idea came about. Uh, you haven't been playing a certain game, have you? This episode has not been sponsored by Bethesda, but <laughs> if they're open to the idea, hey. No, it realistically. Call me. Yeah. <laughs> no, Ross, hey, been, it has been sponsored by yours and Caleb's addiction. And uh, probably mine and Tom's yeah. when we're actually able to play it yes uh so uh, yeah you could be all sanctimonious once you've tried heroin yeah. <laughs> all right it's until delicious. then you shut your mouth you don't know what you're talking about. i've heard it's delicious <laughs> there's i don't so have so much stuff all well, the problem is with Tom, Aaron, I don't gonna, have, you have a robot butler in the game so like yeah, you're gonna we, love i know it's like but we don't have if you go to make the, oh, you the can heroin bowler hat on them uh, uh <laughs> On Codsworth. So, but, uh, no, if, uh, Ross, I'm sorry. If you, I just point this out, Caleb, if you're going to make the heroin illusion, we don't have the needles for it yet. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, well, uh, in news, uh, just a reminder for those of you who are in the Red Markets playtest that you should, uh, get those playtest notes in by December 20th. Uh, please, please, as we mentioned in the last Game Designers Workshop. Uh, so d- this is just another friendly reminder. Uh, in other news, uh, Base Raiders Death Traps Volume 1, uh, with three caps, des- uh, three traps designed by Caleb, uh, will be released soon. I've got the final art for it. I just need to finish writing the stats out for it and lay it out. So uh, hopefully before the end of the month, it should be out. So those of you who be- back the Boiling Point Kickstarter, should get your copies free through Drive-Thru RPG, and it'll be on sale uh, on Drive-Thru and the Base Raiders web store. So, Huzzah! And Caleb would thank you, but he's playing Fallout 4. Uh, what? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the idea uh, Fallout 4, uh, for those of you who are not unaware, has a new segment where you get control of uh, not just one, but many settlements, uh, and you can build things for these people, for settlers who come, and then you can tell them what to do. So it's a little like a mini-game that's a little bit like SimCity. It's not nearly as complex, but it's a fun way to like, oh, I'll build turrets here, and I'll build a little bar here, and oh, look at my little uh, mindless followers. They do as I want. Dance for for me. Yes, dance. And that idea has been... It would be a very interesting thing to do in a tabletop game because obviously you could give them the followers more complex personalities and wills rather than I tell you to do this so you do it. Right. Uh, and you can give them bowler hats. You can give them bowler hats. Um, in fact, that's you play you dress up, which is really fun. Exactly. In fact, you live in uh, my town. Everyone's required to wear a bowler hat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I need to source more bowler hats. <laughs> Quest for the bowler hats. So, but like. It, there are several RPGs out now that I feel that have the mechanics to sort of uh, handle these kind of topics in an interesting way. There's obviously Apocalypse World, where you can be the leader of a settlement or a leader of a gang. Uh, there's GURPS, of course, which we've done through our own Fallout GURPS game. Uh, there's also Mutant Year Zero. Uh, there are... Rain. Uh, rain, obviously, yeah. Uh, there are many ways mechanically to do this, so we're not going to be talking about game mechanics for this. It's The idea is, I don't want this... A game where you're the leader of a community should not be the same as you're just a wandering murder hobo 
killing things and taking their well, stuff or solving mysteries until you go crazy. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the important thing to note about a tabletop RPG is that if you're going to have a community in your game, you can actually tell a story about a community. Yeah. Unlike video games, which fall off or while I love it, I'm basically allowing people to live in my closet because they <laughs> keep my closet organized. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't give a shit about them as people. So they literally just say... So they're your closet organizers. Yes. They, well, do you rush to their defense when super mutants attack? Not particularly. No. Okay. <laughs> um, the closet is not needed yeah, to be Yeah, and uh, the reason I would is because it would harm my cap production <laughs> and my closet because they're just NPC, yeah. you know, <laughs> inventory miners. They are cogs in my machine. Yeah, so. Uh, so the idea is uh, with this, how do you tell a story that's unique to being a leader, a, community, a t- type of story that you could tell uh, only through this way, not through being like, I am the chosen hero and I'm going off an adventure, or I'm an investigator going to solve mysteries. Uh, so we're going to talk about like these kind of topics and uh, why this can still be, for example, power fantasy, even though you have responsibility, uh, which is kind God, of... God, that and, sounds like work. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, so, I mean, we'll just go around the table. What kind of adventures, when when I mention this idea as a campaign or as a uh, scenario, what kind of adventures do you pop in your head uh, that you would want to run or play in, uh, Aaron? Um, personally, because uh, this actually came to mind for um, a game that was suggested by one of, uh, an acquaintance of one of our friends, Andy, uh, about doing some sort of game about just help, uh, basically doing all about the community relationships. Uh, they made the mention the basis of this being like uh, Kiki's Delivery Service or um, Porco Rosso, just because it was the inner community that was built around every all the relationships. So would it be like building, negotiating with other communities, or like building consensus within your own community? within your own community, and just those uh, the, the lives that you're affecting. So you're directly. the mayor, but like this this person on this block hates his neighbor. And so you have to deal with. Do you your, negotiate between okay. that or? So that's uh, not a problem. You can solve with murder. Yeah, no, it, it has Usually. to. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's you, ridiculous. You can yes. solve it for murder, but it's going to end the game pretty quickly. Right. So not uh, if you legalize murder. Yeah. So uh, Caleb, any? Well, uh, no soul left behind. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> definitely very much the dynamic of how much of yourself do you want to give up personally to help a community? Right. One that would not be appreciative or even acknowledge your sacrifice. Yes, which is. You know, pretty much the question asked of everyone in real life, uh, <laughs> but something I wanted to deal with because I thought it was interesting considering the better angels mechanic. Yeah. Um, I also talked about briefly in the uh, campaigns we shan't be running uh, mm-hmm. podcast about the the idea for a fantasy campaign I'd want to do where you know you're you're literally trying to run uh, what would the be the equivalent in our history of a of a slave state, a slave rebellion state, like so? Oh right, like the Dominican right. Republic. You have a you have a culture that has to start over from scratch, right? Uh, and it would be important on the order in which you brought infrastructure and services to them would determine the culture, right? So, like, if religion is the first thing you bring to the ground table, they're a theocracy now, uh, and then that gets complicated by whatever you bring in second. Right. But if you bring in like scientists or something, now they're technocrats or you know that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. Uh, so I've been thinking about that kind of stuff as well, campaign wise. Yeah, I remember yours was uh, the idea that all these slaves were like gladiator types, and so like they're all professional badasses, but they don't know how to farm or mend their clothes. Or yeah, it would be after a slave yeah. revolt, and it would be very typical. And then like you would have an entire population with PTSD. Uh, they would be raising kids with PTSD. Most of them aren't literate, 
most of them were raised as slaves, so they don't have almost any education. Uh, so how do you bring that to them? Uh, they have a very strong leader, which isn't you, uh, but you're tasked with going other places to get those things because the leader has to keep them under wraps. Yeah. But as you as you win other places to bring those into the community, uh, that would have a, a shaping effect on the community, depending uh, on what well, order you brought them in. It'd yeah. be sort of like a fantasy campaign quest. It's kind of like a Rorschach tech in this, in, test in a sense, like what do you think is the most important thing for a society? Yes. So, or like uh, what order do you think and there's no wrong. there's no right answer. I mean, there are wrong answers if you're like, no, let's just bring in more military stuff. Let's just start raiding other cultures for their shit. Yeah, I mean, you could do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they would be safer. Yeah. Uh, the, the key to that would be like having threats and needs that are constant. Yeah. Across all areas. And so, like, what do you take off first? So, like, security would have to be a threat because, yeah. you know, a big slave revolt. You obviously got through it by grit and numbers, not by, you know, technical prowess or even maybe even tactics. Right. Uh, so you would be in danger of invasions from neighboring countries. So you could go security first, but then, holy shit, you have a country that's founded in blood after getting its blood drained and now you've just brought in a bunch of mercenaries to teach them to be better fucking killers like yes your community would be safe no one around them would be safe yeah and uh, well, but, screw those other guys and, and yeah. what to say that they yeah. immediately won't start the cycle again start bringing other slaves so that, that would they kind need. of affect so, that yeah. kind of thing so like depending on what order you did maybe i'd make it like you couldn't have it all maybe it'd be like okay you went security first. Those scientists or alchemists or whatever aren't going to come over here. They're scared. Like, you're scary as fuck. Yeah. They don't care. They're not going to be cool with it. You're the Legion of Doom. Huh? Uh, so, for instance, but if you went scientists first, you could still get the security guys. But then you couldn't get the religious stuff yeah. or the education stuff because the religion guys dislike the alchemists a lot. So yeah. it would be sort of uh, like a balancing act. Like, what do you want to leave out? Yeah. Uh, depending on those adventures. But, okay. Uh, well, come on. We all know how it's going to end up. So, like, oh, uh, like, can I offer you agriculture? Mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> we would all be a Morton Joe. Be not, yeah. No. Don't get addicted to Aquacula. Uh, yeah. so, uh, Tom, what kind of adventures do you think of when. Well, I've, I'm more thinking, I've been a SimCity player since the Commodore 64. Okay. So, when I think of games like building communities, I really think of building them. Like, okay. Actually managing them. To me, I wouldn't. My ideal was I wouldn't be the guy going out and adventuring. Yeah. I would be the guy running it, making decisions. So a resource management kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Which is, in a sense, Caleb's, but instead of, like, what is your ideal society like, how do we get the most out of our limited resources? Like, mm, and, uh, and basically and doing like, making the best, and then once you get, like, getting all the basics taken care of, and thinking, okay, now we actually have a few more extra resources with everyone right. fed. Yeah, well, now what do I want to pursue? I mean, that could be an interesting... if, if you could weave that into the other, uh, the previous example, you could like, well, maybe we could solve these things if we're just good enough civic engineers. Maybe we'll have enough mm. resources to hire the mercenaries so they can s- defend our borders. We don't have to become a bloodthirsty, and we can get the scientists, and you know, or at least some mm. of the the contradictions. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, I, I would say that you know, you're the the GURPS riffs game. Not sorry, the GURPS Fallout game. Yes, sorry, thank you. Yeah, that was kind of, that was almost that was the closest I ever got because I like it. Because you kind of said, like, all right, you told us, okay, your communities have one unique resource that right. others don't. Well, what's it going to be? And that, the okay, so I think you know the Ghoul community of Rala had we had access we had access to like power armor because we had a 
Well, no, I think it was power. Like you had the working nuclear reactor. Like yeah, you, you no, no, we had it. we had access. No, we also we had access to a, a like a place that used to build small suits of power armor. Okay, but I don't remember the exact details. Yeah, but yeah, it's like so you have like one thing that you can trade it, but if you trade it all away, it's all gone. Right. And that, that that kind of idea of game of like resource management also appeals, I think, to the same kind of players who like tactics in mm-hmm. like dungeon crawl games. Like, how can I min max my guy instead of min maxing uh, my murder hobo efficiency? It's how can I min max my uh, civil engineering degree so we can mm-hmm. you know have enough resources so we're not going to starve to death or get overrun by raiders. Uh, uh, yeah. I think it's important to note in a tabletop RPG, though, is that while SimCity and stuff like that and Fallout and stuff is like there, it's great. Yeah. Um, those are largely cosmetic changes. Yeah. Like, and cosmetics breeds character, but other than flavor text, which is only engaging the DM at, at any one point and maybe engaging some players, you're not going to get a lot of player buy in on like. Well, now it's blue paint, or like now it's super tall. Right. Like the like those descriptions should be in there, but they have to fundamentally change the characterization of the NPCs. Right. Because that are they have to require, are they have to provide some sort of um, tangible mechanical benefit that has an impact on the game. Right. Um, so uh, I think that's the case. So like for instance, in Fallout, I think it's largely cosmetic and the joy of like sure make different stuff because even when you have stats on your settlements and that's nice. I mean, you have to do a lot of work to get that to come up with any kind of tangible benefit to your individual character in terms of, like, caps and stuff they own. Uh, you have, there's a lot of work in between, like, the starting, ooh, I built a lamp, yeah, uh, and, like, everything else. And it's uh, kind of like its own metagame. And even then, if it goes down, you're not cut off from doing any of the activities in the game. It just makes everything slightly easier. Yeah. So it's not much of a mechanical benefit. I think you're you're much better off in an RPG is following the strengths of a tabletop RPG and making sure that the changes you're building in your community make a fundamentally different community. Well, yeah, like, uh, and I think that's what Tom and I were talking about in uh, several RPGs, like Rain and also in Fallout or in the GURPS game. If you there are certain GURPS supplements that basically stat out communities uh, like characters, and so by fixing the sewage treatment plant, you improve the health of the community by ten points uh-huh. or whatever. And that's that and so the idea is you would start out with like a starting community with these kind of stats and you have to do these kind of things to get to the point where it's stable or self sustaining. And so that would be a technical challenge. Or in Dresden neighborhood aspects. Neighborhood mm-hmm. aspects, yeah. You want to change from mm-hmm. crime ridden hellhole to tolerable. Settlements usually have their own personalities like the uh the SimCity two thousand thirteen game, which yeah. I'm totally done with. The one thing I did like at the time is certain city uh, maps had had different resources. Yeah. Which usually you kind of by necessity determined what kind of city Yeah, you build an industrial town yeah. when it's on oil. Like, yeah. yeah. Um no, that's that's an excellent point. But I mean, yeah, that's another thing. Um So I mean, there's it, already we're coming up with the idea like these kind of games could either be like tactical technical challenges uh, or they could be storytelling focus or morality kind mm-hmm. of a narrative thing. I like, mean, or both. Like you could interweave it. Or well, it's kind of interesting. Kind of like the game that was based off of uh, yeah. Fury Road, the video game. It was kind of like fighting over control of Gastown, yeah, the Bullet Farm, and the Citadel. All of which they're basically cities. They're actually kind of like they're Sim. They're Sim City 2013 cities. Gastown had oil supplies. Yeah, the Bullet Farm had minerals, and the Citadel had water. Okay. Essentially, that it was. It's you know, 
like they get along by trading back their the one resource they have back and forth right. to get the others they don't have. Yeah, right. Uh, trade, I can't which kind of like yeah, they say, and that could be another thing, like actually negotiating business, like mm-hmm. uh, arranging trade deals with other communities in order to uh, increase the wealth and prosperity mm-hmm. and security. But you also yeah. be, but and also trade I, also creates cu- changes to your culture, for example. Yes, very big change. So like that that's why enclave generation is such a big deal if you're going to run a campaign in red markets. red markets. Yeah. You have to know where you're at and what you have and what you don't have. Yeah. to characterize your community, but otherwise it's not mechanical. Like it's yeah. just it's a storytelling tool. So so that's the other thing I think it's important to mention is that your community only exists where it touches your PCs. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You do not want a bunch of NPCs talking to each other. You are not like the rote NPC dialogue in Assassin's Creed when you are GM. You can't just have a conversation with yourself. Uh, <laughs> well, you could. Well, I think in terms of mechanics, yeah. um, as a GM, especially certain types of GMs, I think are sort of drawn into building simulationist rules to cover that. And that's kind of thing. Don't black box it so much to where, like, you make a bunch of rolls in secret in between game sessions. You're like, well, it turns out there was a trade war. Uh, your economy's wiped out. There's nothing you could have done. Unless you want that to be the story. Yeah, But like, then that robs the players of almost just, any agency. Yeah, though. well, I mean, to a certain degree, community leading is about dealing with things that you don't have control over. Like a natural disaster or... Uh, stagflation or what what have you. Yeah, and like... But you can't just do that as a matter of like dib rules in this black box that the players have no access to says I should do this. Well, I mean, the reason I mentioned that it can only exist where they interact with the PCs is because the danger of overworld building, which is a big danger if you're a GM because that's your primary activity. It's what you want to do. So you do it, and that's great, but the danger of that is that you don't live any blank space for the players to have impact. When, yeah. and if we want to talk about mechanics, you talk about like the quiet year, you talk about dungeon world, you talk about anything where you have these like group-building map mechanics or, or Dresden files or anything like that. It's all about leaving blank space for the PCs to make their impact because yeah. um, that's the primary uh, benefit of running a community-based game is that they get to see the tangible agency and stakes of their actions um, rather than just go in a hole, kill goblins, steal stuff, leave. Um, so that that's what you really have to watch out for because if you overworld build, overworld build, you might find yourself not leaving enough room for your PCs. Yeah. And then if you overworld build, you might, might find yourself not uh, using your time well because like, if they don't touch on the trade war and they don't give a shit then what about the three pages you just wrote about the trade war? <laughs> um, that could have been stuff that they actually touched in the game yeah. and, and was part of the game. So um, I think that stuff is useful, though, if you are improving Because, like, if you... That's kind of my goal for Enclave Generation. It doesn't have a lot of tangible benefit mechanically to the game other than it lets the GM come up with better jobs. It's hopefully evocative for what kind of contracts are offered at that place. And then uh, finally, it helps you bullshit when the players want to interact with a part of the community that you didn't quite anticipate. Because if you know all those other elements and you kind of have a basic history in your mind, it's much easier to come up with that than when you come in and be like, where do I get a haircut in this place? Yeah, and you're like ah, bah, da, da, bah. like yeah. You, you can come up with something faster if you know it is uh, La Cabusier College Campus. Oh, there's a group of art design students that came up with a barber shop, and that's how they run their you know bounty mm. for bounty. And the oh, okay, I can came up with that because we came up with a page description. We have a big yeah. Rico's Pizza here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's about the flavor of the community too. Because yeah, um, I mean the whole point of this is to run an adventure or campaign, 
that is different than like your murder hobos or your investigators and you have no ties to the world. So like if you make the, this community kind of generic, it, like what's the point, you know? So you yeah. don't want it to be like Fallout where it's your closet but bigger. You know? Well, yeah, you, you want uh, the you want, you want the PCs to think this is my community. It's your community. Well, whether they're running it or just a member of you're, it. Yeah, yeah, you're part of it. But uh, they have their own lives. In fact, that you should give them some pushback from the community. Like the the random citizen bitches to them about like, oh, the the sewers broke, backed up again, or ah, oh, goddamn goblins got my garbage again. Uh, or like players that, players that go adventure a lot or get famous, and there's like, look, we'd like you to take a more active role in the community. Yeah. You know, like uh, take a job which says you can't go out and adventure so or much. Or dealing with the possibly the party of other adventurers who are coming in trashing everything and then you have to take care of them to protect uh, them. Yeah, that's true. Like every time uh I think a good that's a good point, Jaron. Um the idea that any action you do should have an equal and opposite counter reaction. So if the players mm-hmm. again, like also going back to your campaign idea is what do the players choose to deal as a priority, that means that creates a problem somewhere else. So if you like are the, the the mayors of this fantasy village, and you go kill the local orcs, uh, orc clan that have been raiding the caravans? I'm like, oh, trade improves, security improves. Well, yeah, but now the thieves have snuck in because you weren't guarding the community, yeah. and they've started. Or maybe uh, those orcs were also holding something else at bay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Something. Well, I mean, you don't want to do. I mean, to a certain degree, that's fine, but I don't want, like, it's just like, oh, a new monster of the week comes in. You kill the orcs, and then that brings yeah. in bugbears. Bugbears bring in hill giants. And, like, <laughs> they were holding off the gorillas, and they were holding <laughs> off the sharks. And, and finally, yeah. Demogorgon moves in next door. Yeah. yeah it, it's weird how the threats have just been level appropriate for us every <laughs> single time. Like, I feel like that, that you, you want to create different oh, yeah. problems. Okay, yeah. yeah. When you, by the time you get to Epic, it's like, yeah, Demogorgon's house, like, he's got a bunch of rusty cars on the lawn. He's really yeah. not keeping his yard up. You need to go talk to him. One kind of an adventure, I think, is also uh, because you're the leaders, you're the ones that have to take all the, the problems of the community. So, like, uh, for example, if the trade comes in, that changes culture. So if a missionary comes in of some new religion and be like converts a bunch of people and they demand changes, uh, that could be di- different. Or uh, or just the, the people are like, we're really uncomfortable with the fact that you're a necromancer and you've been raising the dead. I know you're not taking from our village graveyard, but it's just creeping people out. Can you cut back on the necromancer? Well, I need that necromancy to kill the villain that I used it to. You didn't complain when I killed that dragon. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, then, the, ne- then the necromancer appeal, like, you know, appeals for equal rights for undead. Right. So, I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, having pushback from followers is a thing. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think you even necessarily need to be the leader of a community. But I don't think there's a point in doing a community-focused game unless there's a lot of agency for the players. Def- yeah. Because, yeah. like, uh, that's, that's, I mean, it's still a mystery game, really, only instead of trying to find a central question and trying to find an elusive villain the question of the game is what is what are we going to be able to turn this place into what is this going to yeah. be by the time we are finished um, how can i probably is it going to be a steaming hole in the ground or love it or leave it beautiful like metropolis the, uh, or yeah. so i don't think you need to be i don't even think you need to necessarily be the leader because you talked about like yeah don't burn down the whole town while they're gone yeah and something like that but you are right in that a lot of times you don't have complete control of your community so maybe a huge fire starts how much of the town do you save? Like, that's still agency. Like, mm-hmm. we were there, we were responsible for this that happened, we were responsible for that happened. So, like, in Better Angels, you guys, no uh, no one was really the leader. 
right. of the school. And even that person is politically checked and financially checked in so many different ways. No one has absolute control. Yeah. Uh, some stuff happens outside of your control. It's all about like how you deal with it. But how you deal with it matters. Yeah. So um, I've been reading Rat Queens. Uh, which oh, is basically yeah, yeah. set it's in its own great. D&D universe. And that's like a perfect example because the Rat Queens are not leaders of the community by any means. They are one of many adventuring bands and they are often hated by the community because they get drunk and do drugs and start fights everywhere. <laughs> uh, but, and they bring the, their foes to the town walls to uh, try and kill yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, but they are yeah. also responsible for protecting the towns. But then they bring their foes to the town wall and they get lauded for protecting the town from yeah. the foes. And then eventually they get caught up in a threat to the town that only appears to be their fault, but really isn't. And they end up saving the town and everybody inside of it. So, like, that, they're not leaders of the community, but I think that's a wonderful way to deal with it. Like, yeah. this sort of tortured relationship with, like, oh, they're a bunch of drunken degenerate drug addicts <laughs> and some people prioritize that as way worse and hire assassins to kill them to you know leave their perfect town <laughs> right way but then other people are like well yeah we have to clean up the bar a little more often but they only kill the monsters that are trying to kill us like yeah yeah they're they're going out and getting stuff for us and things like that so it very much becomes a discussion about like what the community needs to be even though they're not like the mayor uh, so you that's just, a good point. I you mean, just have to give them your yeah. your players just need to have agency, the ability to change the community because like that's the power fantasy in the you know the Western first world. Like yes, you can engage the community, you can be civically minded, you can do charity, you can do good work, but ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time you're going to have no tangible proof of what you did being positively good. Like you're you're gonna not see it, or it's gonna be beyond. You know, it's gonna happen away from you, or people aren't gonna express gratitude for it, or like, and and that's the that's the real world because we don't yeah. live in a community that's small enough anymore, or even tangible enough because we have so many digital communities where like you get that buzz of seeing like this place is not just a place I am. This is this this place is this place because I am in it. Uh, that that sensation of like. The circular thing in the community, it, I think, is pretty uncommon nowadays. It, it, yeah. it does happen, and I do believe in it, but like, it's not the buzz of like we killed that thing, and now this guy is the dead. Woo! Like, right. and then, yeah, yeah. There's no city on the hill. There's no like a blank slate community where uh, you are colonizing a new world that is totally empty of actual indigenous residents. <laughs> Unless you just yeah. float yeah. up on an island somewhere. Yeah. That's but even on the island. Um, that, I mean, that's a good point. And I, I should say, yeah, that these are not like a binary thing. You can either do murder hobo or community. It's more of a spectrum. You could choose like 70% murder hobo, 30% community, or vice versa. So where like you have some adventures where you go out and do typical uh, PC things. Uh, and then there's the adventures where you have to get your community, uh, fix the, the town well, or uh, get everyone to agree how to use the well or something like that. That, yeah. Or that could be an encounter, like a side encounter. You go home to rest up and fix your gear and heal up, and then you have to deal with some calamity at home, you know, or like, oh, the the library burned down. We need a new library. Okay, well, <laughs> you're the guy who kills the dragon, so you, you got the gold. Like, right are my players historical events? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be massive historical events. It doesn't have to be like, you know, 
before Drizzt and after Drizzt yeah. time. Like, <laughs> oh, that it, guy. It could be like <laughs> local historians, like uber old people nerds and library historians talk about, well, that building didn't exist until the other place got razzed down by that group of adventures back in Arctic. <laughs> um, like, and, and that's fine, but like, if, if they've had some sort of tangible, um, semi permanent impact, like that is that's what you want out of any character in any fiction because the character exists now before and after the story starts. Yeah, which is really what you to you want to apply. You want to only focus on the most important part of that character's life, but you want to imply that they didn't just exist when the story started. Like they made some kind of logical sense as a yeah. person uh, in this world, and like that's why you need your characters need to be able to do something in that community. They need to do something to change it. If it's a community-based game. Now, Delta Green, you guys can't do shit. Right. It's nihilistic. Like, <laughs> nothing you do matters. You might as well have shown up dead. It didn't... <laughs> Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, obviously, we're just playing until you guys realize that you should put the gun in your mouth. Like, and that's Delta Green. Like, but if you're going to do a community based game, you know, why? Why do all the setup for that? If that's the answer, if the answer is like, why were we even here? Ugh, why would you set people up with those expectations? God. I mean, actually, remember, remember 69? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. 69. Uh, you actually could do a really nihilistic community game if you really wanted to, but that would be something like, uh, I know you mentioned like Siege Situ- I'm thinking, of course, like World War II, like if you're a member of the Resistance. Oh, yeah. Uh, like you're you know, in a rural French village and you're like, fuck the Nazis. And you start killing Nazis and the Nazis eventually, it winds up with your village being fucking massacred. Just raised to the ground. Uh, so. And everyone killed them to be for you to so that could be a nihilistic community game uh you know war and that kind of thing or just well or during the the um oh sorry the tabletop variant of this war of mine that you're just a refugee trying to survive yeah that could yeah well i mean like it wasn't that nihilistic but no soul left behind was kind of a nihilistic Mm -hmm. game because you could do things to help the community that weak yeah and then some other horrible shit rolled down the pipe from state or the community's parents or shit you couldn't control you can just mitigate yeah the siege damage coming in but you could still mitigate you could choose to do nothing and focus on yourself and watch it get way worse or you can you know uh put your fingers in the dike uh but you still put your fingers at the dike like it can still be uh it's a shithole but it's our shithole <laughs> like like you can still do that and that's a viable way to like run a community game cuz it likes it's our shithole now we have ownership of it yeah. instead of you let's know let's flip the crack house yeah, so exactly let's flip the crack house uh there's a crack house that's really inexplicably nice that you can't sell because you don't like Leo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't have to be a massive impact. It just has to be a impact. Yeah. Um, and this may be a little bit of a divergence, too, but uh, when you're talking about at least the communities uh, are possibly running that, what about the situations where players kind of a- adopt them and you kind of have to build them up? Because I know that the... The example I'm thinking of is with the Gripply you guys and the uh, New World. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Like community games don't have to necessarily start that way. Like uh, if you're a good game master, you should be responsive to what your players really respond to. Uh, so if the players are like, "Oh my God, these poor people need our help. We must guide and lead them." Uh, I mean, part of that is obviously based on the rule set you're using. I mean, there are some RPGs I think are better than for communities and others. Uh, community type games. Uh, so D and D was kind of eh, it was okay. It wasn't it wasn't the worst. Uh, but 
the I mean that's that's a good point. So like if they do that, then start be logical. Okay, well, what do you want to do? They're here's how they are. Like what's most it'd be like Caleb's game. Like here are these people. Here are their problems. What do you think is the most important yeah. to fix? And here's how you can think you can fix it. Uh, and then just kind of go from there. I think that would that would be a really cool. Uh, that's a really cool th- uh, point. Uh, um, so or yeah, or any the, other. The adoption mechanic is another risk of like overworld building and not leaving blank space for your players. Because like if you guys had gotten to the Gripply and adopted the Frog People, and Ross is like, oh no, the Frog People have to die in episode twenty three. Like uh, I've got no stats for them, and I will build nothing up. <laughs> like that's a trick question because that assumes I have plans for episode twenty. <laughs> exactly, but yeah. like you are definitely not the one suffering. <laughs> from overplanning <laughs> but other people might go too far down the world building rabbit hole and like if your parent if your players really want to grab on something that they find to be cool and take over and take agency and invest in if you've built well no that's not what happens in chapter 57 yeah. uh, then like well fuck what happens in chapter 57 like yeah. you're yes. not writing a book you are playing or it a could game be, it could be an interesting challenge well let's well, they want to save them. Let's see if they can. That could be the exactly yeah. Yeah, if they can is agency. Though. Uh, yeah, because yeah, kind of a, I know it's a little another example too uh, with one of the runnings of Nim that I did at Gen Con. Um, we had the frog Sean who would always just it was basically just there as a mouthpiece. But yeah, uh, we had, I had written him in as he was part of the Nim community. He interacted with characters. He knew the main ones, and then I think it was a third group that had Sean, maybe Peter in it. Um, said no we want to take him along with us and i was sitting there going what <laughs> and well okay roll for it and realize oh i have no stats for him <laughs> so, like scratch them down but they accepted and they used him from there so afterwards any other plays i made for that i altered to say all right if you make the appropriate roles you can bring these people into your community just to give them that agency that you were talking uh, yeah, about yeah that's a good point like if they're members of the community and be like hey you look trustworthy come join us yeah like hang oh out no with us. it's like yeah i'm suddenly becoming an npc yeah. halo's appearing so. i have stats now yeah. uh, uh that, that that's a good point uh and also i think it, it falls that yeah you you don't know who your players are going to latch on to yeah so be prepared for any npc that you just happen to drop yeah. And I might go like Balgrin the Fat must now be our economics advisor. Like, God damn it! Uh, well, I, that wasn't my reaction. I'd be like, yeah, sure, all right. Uh, but he's yeah, like, that, like, that's yeah. a good point. And that yeah, you can trust me. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and that that creates new story plots because if they adopt this new character into the community, uh, you could then look. Then you have a lot of new plot hooks because then you're like, how does the new guy? interact with the other NPCs and again you don't want to have Caleb's uh, the problem that Caleb mentioned about like NPCs talking to NPCs mm-hmm. but that could be scenes where Sean has problems Sean the Frog has problems well, fitting he's in crazy. Yeah. Uh, he's yeah because he's crazy or whatever uh, so he's eccentric he's eccentric but like the players didn't have an adventure or at least an encounter where they're like come on guys Sean is cool stop being a dick to him or like uh, try to build him up. See, sh- see, Sean could do something no one else can. He could jump really high, and he could do this. And like, or a guy, or a guy yeah. that you can't stand is suddenly be- being offered a position of power. Like, no, no, we have to discredit that guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, or Sean, yeah, uh, becomes more popular than your character. Like, can they deal with envy? Uh, as everyone's like, <laughs> we love Sean. Screw you. You're lame. Uh, so that's another. And, and if you're gonna go NPC NPC, and you're not afraid of giving up agency to your players, there's no reason you can't do it like Red Markets does, and like. Ask the person having the scene, like, do you want me to play the person in the community, or do you want to just offload that role and want somebody else on the table? Or have everybody, like, yeah. Yeah, if they have no stats, if they have nothing else but a personality, I mean, yeah. build that up. Let the person be 
uh, that PC's daughter and somebody else be that PC's husband. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we see, we don't even, you don't, the Game Master doesn't even determine whether Sean the Frog is accepted. We just do a scene where Sean role plays it and then everybody else plays. Yeah. yeah. We make it more drama system. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's good workout. And, and it works great because we wouldn't have gotten beautiful jewels like, you know, t- uh, Ross's interpretation of my Jewish mother. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, Bubsy. Oh, Bubsy. Uh, so. Uh, those are good points. Um, and some other things I, I, I thought uh, that I've written down in our notes that we haven't really talked about. One is other adventure types. Uh, I know you mentioned this in our notes, uh, doing sieges, uh, yes. which a siege obviously being like someplace where the community is isolated, surrounded by a foe, and they have to survive with minimal resources as long as possible to outlast the enemy or to break through. Like yeah, just do, completely thing. do a Helm's Deep situation um, with that. So. Yeah, oh yeah, or the Helm's Deep, you know, last stand kind of thing, which can be very dramatic as a tactical challenge, uh, but also as a role-playing thing, like how do you convince you okay times are really bad yeah, do we, <laughs> things have not gone so well so you have to like yeah, do we get, save the remnant of a remnant and and try to role play it so the king will lead that last charge and then it comes down to priorities too do you like all right we should you warrior guys make a last stand while we evacuate the women and children or do we like put all the warriors in one big risky move to try and kill the enemy but then if we fail everyone's dead or so like it becomes yeah or do you like yeah negotiate Negotiate a surrender and yeah. like save the maximum number of people and leave in disgrace. Or do you Alamo it so yeah. that though you are dead, you are now inspired? Yeah, you are now the, the, the story that echoes through history. Like, what's yeah. your priority there? Like, yeah. yeah, this seems to be the common theme with being a leader of some kind is like, what is your priority? What are you willing to sacrifice both from yourself and from your community in order to achieve? Uh, your agenda and that seems to be the difference because when you're a person by yourself you're not responsible for anyone you can just do whatever the fuck you want and like the only the most consequences are uh, are going to come back to hit you but when you're a community leader or you're a person of importance in a community your actions affect others people who have nothing to do directly with you you know innocent bystanders are going to be affected by your actions and that, that that's a big I think Theme, uh, and that's something that that separates these kind of games. Yeah, it's your effect on the on the wa- on the world <coughs> over, overall. Or that um, the spy game you pitched for a bit that you wanted to set in Fallout. Uh, the, oh yeah, the re- you're in a you're in a country in the midst of a civil war. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and you could give yourself up to an imperialist power or one side of the, yeah. of the civil war. This sort of trifecta, and your students playing people against the middle in a sort of Casablanca esque neutral yes. city. Uh, that would be very interesting and cause a lot of agency, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's actually, yeah, I totally forgot about that. Uh, but yeah, that would be, uh, because you start actually as rather humble, but then you realize your actions will have incredible impact later on. You're a small person, but you're at the center of balance. You're, you're at the center you, of balance. You can be the tipping point. You're, yeah. you're the tipping point. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, what do you tip uh, towards? Like, are you going to be like, yeah, a new organization who I don't know much about? I trust you because you're you're helping me now. You'll obviously help me in the future. Uh, or do I betray you? Or do I... Uh, so I can sell you out to my former alliance. Or just seek a compromise between the, the both the factions. Well, so. it's a war. Like, one of them's got to go. Like, they're, they're, <laughs> they're not... Uh, or do I set, betray both sides so I can set myself to be an imperial warlord, or my independent warlord? Um, I think if... The way, now I'm thinking about it, I think it's important to note that, like, when using video games as an example, it's really easy to add new quests and new options. Yeah. 
Uh, so f- take, for instance, Skyrim, when I'm the chosen of at least four different religions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the organization of, and like... And the Dragonborn. Yeah. Uh, and the Dragonborn, and the head of a wizard's college, despite having no magic skills. Oh, God. And the this, that, and the other. Oh, yeah, and you're a thane of nine different cities. Yes. Yeah. It, it's very easy to do more. Yeah. The reason people are coming to your game is because... When your options are in there, they are significant, meaning that one option cuts off others. And I think that is the more reactive thing that a person can do that is, like, fucking impossible to code into a video game with all those negations of certain skills based on on one thing or the other. Well, yeah, the even is- in the, even in the previous Fallout video games, there's always that point of no return. Like if you do this, the other factions are going to be angry. This is the end game. So uh, yeah, but it's pretty artificially late. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. really late. And it's kind of the same right. thing in in WoW too. Is that they do have alternate factions that you. Even if you're working on one little quest for that, it'll reduce your rating with one of the other ones. But it's pretty static, though. Oh, like uh, the the polyamory uh, controversy with Fallout Four, and uh, that like you can have any number of romantic relationships with any number of characters, regardless of species of sex, and no one gets pissed off. Well, look, I think that's really great, and I think it's awesome they included that, and they weren't, like, shunning people like that, but you can have, like, 20 companions in the game, and the likelihood of them all just being down to clown with everybody else at the same time is fucking ridiculous. There is a romanceable ghoul in the game. Yeah, and the fact that, like, he's, like, in here with, like, the leader of the Minutemen and that robot with a buzzsaw arm and like it's getting totally freaky and everybody's down with it like okay yeah that's great for a lot of characters and it's great that you're not shunning those people but at the same time like that's just not stats and the reason that's in there I don't think is necessarily for like a social justice reason even though that would be cool uh, and I think it is social justicely and progressive to include it. I think it's in there because it's really fucking hard to code. Like, okay, if I pick yes on this one, all of these have to automatically switch to no. And yeah. like mathematically doing that. So like what video games do in community stuff, it's like they always add more because it's much easier to add more. What you can do as a GM for a tabletop game is you can add consequences like you can add consequences to previous decisions so it's great if you can add more decisions but it adds stakes and it adds agency and it adds con- and it adds like weight to decisions when they have a trickle down effect when you yeah. can't always go back and resave and do the other one yeah that i mean yeah that's a good point you don't have a, you, you can't reload and save oh well, uh, man okay yeah. that yeah that kind of sounds like walking down that hallway in the uh, robot club you did on, on friday uh, that's like it's seeing some freaky shit if you can romance oh, yeah, all yeah, those yeah. characters. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, but I mean, like, you're, yeah, your power is in. Uh, we talked about priorities. Your yeah. power isn't in in making more. Like again, it, I think that'd be an overworld building thing. More options is always nice, but once they start choosing options, it you can make it add some verisimilitude. In other options, get closed off. Like if I yeah. support the imperialists legitimately and I'm not like double agenting them it's going to be real hard for me to support the rebels or something else you know what right. I mean yeah uh, I mean and that's true and I think uh, part of this is that there's no set formula of like how much you can do or like what the consequences are like I mean 
I think it's about the flavor of the game too. And what I mean by this is like in a heroic game, you're presented with like three impossible choices, you know, uh, each one of these options is going to have some sort of horrible consequence. Like give up the, the princess's hand in marriage to someone she doesn't love or thousands of people die or do this, you know, uh, but in the heroic game, there's always that option to where you could put yourself, your, your personal characters at more risk and just do the impossible and square the circle and save the day without having to make any hard choices. Yeah, just the Kobayashi so like, Maru. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And But in a darker, in a more realistic game, there's always going to be like, you can't get it perfectly. There's always going to be at least some screw up, even in the be- best case scenario. And then there's the dark nihilistic where, you know, the French resistance. <laughs> doesn't matter you're all going to get gunned down like everyone you love is going to be gunned down uh almost certainly unless you just betray everyone to cross the english channel and run away like a coward you know yeah the, and then, fl- yeah. the flame and citrone game is pretty bleak and, and then <laughs> yeah, brad pitt exactly. and his tank crew roll into town uh, so, so that's the thing execute like, this prisoner but there's no set <laughs> option of like as a game master you can decide whether the players can uh, achieve the impossible, whether they have to make the hard choice or not, whether it's possible. If, they, if they're clever, you can do it. Like, I tend to do it like, you can if it's a game with magic and supernatural shit. If you, if you go on the extra difficult challenge mode. Yeah, but at fine, least there's, a, yeah. at least there's a, a greater risk to your character. Yeah, you yeah. Should, it should never be easy to not have one of those three choices, I think. Yeah, like, Vo got her revenge. Yeah. But she died and everyone she loved died doing it. Yeah. But... Uh, Fuck the gray sky horn. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that was a game without like there was there was magic, but it wasn't like wizards flying about and casting yeah. magic spells and resurrection spells and that kind of thing. No, it was all uh, about so. But the new world had that because you guys were super natural badasses with super uh, powerful magic, uh, and. So you're uh, saying we were super? Yeah, you're very super, and so same with Heroes of New Arcadia to a certain degree. Uh, yeah. So and I was the only uh, one that, to remain myself throughout that game. Yeah, exactly. Because I was voted that way. <laughs> so uh, Yay. there's a lot to think about when running a game based on a community, and uh, in future episodes there is uh, there are some games I would like to try out that have mechanics for community building, like again Mutant Year Zero. Uh, uh, Spark, a, Spark, yeah, we have to Spark's do that. Very good, uh, um, that kind of stuff because you build the community by building up its uh, social norms more yeah. than you build up. And we've done else. rain, and we've done fall or uh, GURPS, uh, post human pathways, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so there's a lot of other games we'll, we'll try it out in the future uh, with this, but um, we, yeah, it's just uh, it's about the story, not about the mechanics. <laughs> so. Uh, I think that's about anybody else have any final thoughts on community building, leadership? Yeah. All right. I think we're good. All right, good. Uh, so next up, Tom will have a letter. I do. And then we will have some reviews and then shout outs and an anecdote. Oh, my ah! God. So. I'm not going to blow anybody's mind with the following, so I'll just come out and say it. Players in RPGs are harmless psychopaths. Now, I say harmless because nearly all players will never do anything that would actually cause a problem to society, apart from being resource-consuming drains on the public coffers. That and the aggressive immobility of many gamers could be considered another blight on our public image, myself included, but we are mostly harmless. But let's be honest, if the characters those players thought up actually existed in real life, our world would be thrown back to the primal law of survival of the fittest. 
The cities would also be ravaged places, where hordes of guns, sword, magic, explosive, and demonic minion-wielding PCs would be cruising around in their nuclear-powered road warrior vehicles or skeletal nightmare steeds, spreading violence, destruction, and cheap beer and ale across a blasted landscape. Yes, it would be worse than Detroit. So we can all agree, PCs are rather a violent lot. So much so that most of them go around wiping out towns or the entire adult orc population of some random medieval world. And yet many of those players have no idea that consequences might come up in response to their actions. And why should consequences come up? Most encounters are like bad action movies, where those that would enforce consequences would be nothing more than lambs to the slaughter. Entire squads of civil servants would be cut down mercilessly by most PCs, helpless before the onslaught. The only time most players have to worry is when all the underlings are smoking lunch meat and then Oddjob shows up with his razor hat, or Lurtz, the only Orakai with a name, shows up and kills Boromir. So many players go on about their business without a care in the world. And why is this? Well, like most people, PCs want to have power, real or imagined. And there's nothing wrong with that. Power is a natural human need. Whether it's running a multi-billion dollar megacorporation, or just spraying that roach in your kitchen with a steady stream of raid and pretending you're Red Adair on a blazing oil platform in the middle of the Caspian Sea. And for players, this need for power comes out in their RPG characters. Sure, Ralph Bieselman, who works the counter at Office Depot, might not have much power on his own, but Ralph's 19th level blackguard with the soul-devouring sword of Megacock is the scourge of Make-Believia, feared by all, from the local bootlick to the emperor of the land. And this is perfectly fine. We all try to escape our own humdrum lives from time to time, and this is one of the many things that role-playing does beautifully. Escape from the mundane and a brief dip in the pool of imagination and back into reality. So most players don't like it when their refreshing dip in the imagination pool is interrupted by consequences that many times resemble those of the world we are trying to escape. That blackguard isn't meant to be arrested by the city guard for crimes against humanity. However, I put it to you that having a character deal with the consequences of an action that they they or their friends have carried out can be one of the most fun things to do in role-playing. I use the examples of a game set in the Mass Effect universe I have been following lately. In one scene, the squad of human and alien badasses stormed a building that was being used as a mercenary base. The squad consisted of a wide selection of brooding heroes for hire, the kind of soldiers that would swagger through a room of criminals and demand that their leaders surrender them. If not, they were confident they could kill every armed thug in the room before anyone else got a shot off. I'm exaggerating a bit, but you get the idea. The group runs through the base, laying waste to anything in their way. They come across a scientist, like along with that scientist's child. They free them, but leave them behind as they are on a mission. Like many PCs, they plan for extreme prejudice measures in the mission, as in they wired the whole building to explode. Things happen and the building is leveled. The players emerge victorious, the hostages are free because the Geth player went back in and saved them at the last minute, getting pretty, pretty badly damaged in the process. So imagine their surprise when the authorities show up and arrest them. Now, many of the players didn't expect this, but it made perfect sense. Yes, the building was being used by mercenaries who were engaging in criminal activities, but it was still a building in the middle of a crowded city. It was blown up without any thought to what pedestrians might be right outside, and only one player went back to save the hostages. That player got praised from a canon character from the game, and everyone else was put on trial. And you know what happened? Many of the players found that the trial was a great scene to roleplay, and actually felt that understanding there were consequences to their actions that affected other people was a great character growth moment. Sure, some of the players disagreed, and some players still wanted more freedom to kill the bad guys as they wanted, without worrying about what might happen. That's okay, too. That's what some players want, and if they can can still work with the group, and if everyone is still having fun, it all works. 
point is, don't worry if the GM suddenly hits you with a dose of reality after one of your PCs induced orgies of death. A good role player will recognize the possibilities in such a moment and may quickly find the experience worthwhile. My character Kyrop in Wild Talents is such an example, a career criminal who was finally forced to pay for the actions of his youth. And his trial and confrontation with his son was a great moment. And even the bad guys I killed in the game came back to haunt me. Bad guys who I had no problem crushing, mutilating, or dropping in an air conditioning on. And I had to answer for it, and it was all totally worth it. Now, I would like to now mention that this letter was actually written in January of 2012. I wanted to come back and see if I'd actually learned anything from it. And I thought, yeah, some things are different, like, you know, Mass Effect, like, that's even really a thing anymore. But I realized, no, I, I really don't. I, I sometimes think what could happen, like, yeah, but yeah, fuck it, I want to do it. So I might actually in the future explore some of my old letters and see if I actually learned anything from the points I was trying to make. Thank you. And I think I know what music we'll be playing in this episode, and that'll be from R23X. Uh, is that Vaporwave, I'm guessing? It is Vaporwave. Is Actually, it, well, it doesn't sound very Vaporwave-ish to me. So wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. It's what? Vaporwave. Thank you. Um, I got to say it right, Ross. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll describe it a little bit uh, later. But first off, uh, we have not only shout-outs, a review uh, or two, because uh, Aaron has actually uh, read a full book uh, that we got a review copy of, uh, She Walks in Shadows. Uh, yes, uh, this is actually an anthology of short stories that uh, came out just this month or last month, officially, I think. Um, I'll, we'll check on that when providing links. But um, it is an anthology of short stories written in the Cthulhu uh that's like the universe of the Cthulhu mythos, but all from female perspectives and uh, female authors. Since, unfortunately, because of the unfortunately because of the times, uh, Lovecraft stories can be considered kind of socially regressive too. If you just look at the name of his cat, I think you're you're kind of <laughs> soft pedaling that. I am so a much, but bit. yeah, no, sexist, racist <laughs> to a hilt, yeah. and there were not a lot of the female characters who just weren't outright victims within the story. So this is uh, one where they're given a little more agency from the stories. And um, most of the, and there's 25 stories in total, which range from uh, first person, third person narratives, uh, poetry. Uh, my favorite of them so far uh, was the, uh, and I apologize because I'm probably mispronouncing this, the Diabus Minoribus Extorius Theomagica, which is... Uh, put in the star- in the Who's style. It by? Do you know? Uh, that is by Jilly Dreadful, nice. which I'm sure is a pseudonym, but I like the name. So. Good pseudonym. Uh, that's no, an awesome pseudonym. Uh, but that's actually put in the uh, context of a researcher's report on what is apparently a sorcerer's grimoire for summoning the worm of Shibnuggeroth. So uh, it and it just kind of and 
you see as she's writing it down, her mind is slowly going as she is eventually transforming into something unearthly. So, nice. uh, but it's all put in an academic preface. She never breaks it. She just <laughs> it's put in with such a cold and hard logic. It is creepy as hell to read through. So um, that is just one of the great examples of this as well. And I don't want to give away too many of these because just the style and the, the varying styles in different stories and the uh, old content they pull from, there's a lot of very new things here, like this is one of those, or um, another one, it's a very short story called Bring the Moon to Me, uh, which is about a woman who's a um, uh, excuse me, programmer for NASA's spaceships, mm-hmm. and uh, put a little line of code that was inspired by her mother uh, that could uh, that calls to certain things. <laughs> so that is all I will say about that. Nice. Um, but it, uh, there are also other different stories that actually go back in the past, uh, like one of the second stories here, uh, "Turn Out the Light" by Penelope Love, uh, revolves around uh, Lovecraft's mother. And the, it begins at the end of her life where Lovecraft is starting to begin her uh, funeral preparations. And we see kind of her degeneration going forward that she realizes that her son sees things that she can't. And when she, uh, her vision or when her mind is finally turned to it, it starts breaking her down. Um, or one of the other ones uh, in the middle of the book, which was uh, Lavinia's Wood, which was the uh, daughter of Waitley. And it's going all from her perspective. Right. Uh, through the sacrifice and so uh, they sound so you would recommend reading this absolutely so it yeah. is a great content uh, a great set of contents for stories and highly recommended as well uh, yeah I believe this is from the same publishing house Innsmouth Free Press I, I want to be- say I believe so let uh, me take a look uh, yes this is Innsmouth Free Press yeah I've read one of their previous anthologies and I reviewed it for the RPPR uh, Sword versus Mythos I think it is Sword and Mythos Sword and so, Mythos yeah as I've read that one too so. uh, it, which is excellent and uh, very good so they're doing a lot of these themed uh, Cthulhu Mythos anthologies and they're doing really good work uh, so uh, yeah if you're you like write reading short great short stories about the mythos uh, if it's any yeah it sounds like it's, it's the same quality as sword uh, absolutely yeah because so, yeah it's in yeah. yeah the only difference is where sword and mythos was combining more of the high fantasy aspects of it and the hyperion well, versions I, I mean the thing is they're taking the mythos and they're spinning it in out they're pulling it outside of the the typical stuff of what it usually is you know yeah but, just and, the and, the you know, the New England, yeah. Creep well, factor. it's. I mean, the love, the one on Lovecraft's money, uh, mother is obviously uh, New England territory, but it's a new perspective. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it sounds excellent, and I will probably read it as well. Uh, I just, yeah. So, uh, no, I so. highly recommend it. Give them your money so they can keep making more of these. So. Uh, we have another review, Tom. Yep. Uh, uh, a new so. role-playing game that we have done an actual play of yet. Uh, we have. Uh, yes. We'll do more of them. Uh, yes, probably. it is. I game I found on uh, DriveThruRPG, uh, Hicksunt Dracons. I'm probably saying that wrong, but it's the Latin for Here There Be Dragons. Uh, yeah, it's spelled like H-C-S-V-N-T Dracones. Uh, mm. I, I will put the link to the drive through page. Yeah, it's basically uh, like trans is like anthropomorphic animal transhumanism eclipse phase game. Uh, yeah, kind of eclipse phasing. Uh, kind, it's kind of. It's not you know you can't switch bodies quite so easily. And, right. The politics are a lot. They're yeah, it's, far it's, more simplified. Yeah, it's uh, it's essentially the uh, you are the remnants of a workforce created by corporations. Humanity's long extinct. Right. And yeah, it's like it's entirely corporate society because that's all anyone's ever known. Yeah. So it everything is everything is monetized and the game system is interesting that on the outset looks insane like there are 20 attributes. Yeah. 
but it's done actually in an interesting way because they do it in four columns by five rows. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you it's uh, so you look you know there's mind body community and economy. Uh, economy and then there's like strength for all of those. So there's like an economy strength, a community strength, a mind strength, a body strength. Mm-hmm. And for example, and so you just put dots in each column and that like represents what you can do. So it actually, it's pretty easy. You say my, you know, economy acuity and they're like, Oh, well that's pretty easy to look up. It's a lot. It's a more elegant solution than I would have imagined. If you said there are 20 fucking attributes in the game. Yeah. yeah Cause that kind of sounds over, slightly overwhelming, almost to no, like an it, alpha it actually, mega it, level. So. Uh, well, no, no, it's definitely it, the, the, the I mean, resolution mechanics a lot easier than that. Yeah. But I mean, that's, <laughs> that's really not saying much. Like Cinnabar has a better resolution. Yeah. Mechanic Another thing I like, right. it's uh, like, it, it's a, like, a lot of people think, you know, they think anthropomorphic game and they think, Oh, like I know exactly what this is going to be. Yeah. It's really not. In fact, they, a lot of the players. This is the, the writer has said you can kind of forget that you're even playing an animal character right. most of the time. Right. Uh, so it's great setting, and I'm yeah. We've done one session of it so far. I'm going to do. It's going to be a four part. We thing. haven't done combat yet, so it's a pretty simple like tutorial adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the next yeah. one will be because I'm running it, and even I'm like, okay, there's a lot to learn here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is fairly crunchy. Uh, there's a lot of cybernetic modifications. There's like a psychic power magic thing called transcendental uh, technology that you can it's a, yeah, like trans- transcendental implants transcendental that, that basically implants, allow yeah. you to do magic. Yeah, they let you do space magic. Uh, and <laughs> there's also ship yeah. combat, which I'm hoping to get to. I think in the, maybe the third. Yeah, session. we've never really done much in the way of spaceship combat in any RPPR game. Yes, uh, I'm a little bit sad about because I, I would look forward to doing this. Uh, unfortunately, because I'll be trying to join the next session when Excellent. we do yeah, that as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, week uh, from, yeah, week from Friday. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll try it out. So um, and also, well, and as for the book itself, it's actually got a it's a really good looking book. It's uh, you, know, you hardcover. got the hardcover color one. Yeah, from drive through from drive through RPG. It's a uh, great artwork. Uh, the actually the first like fifty two page. It's like two hundred and fifty pages, if not more. I can't can't tell the exact number. Yeah. But the first fifty two pages is all backstory. Yeah. And, well, I mean, you need that for mm-hmm. such a complex setting. But yeah. yeah. <coughs> uh, so we'll have some actual plays of it up at some point, and it's uh, yeah. I mean. It, uh, jumped into it pretty easily. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm probably gonna. I'll probably keep this in mind to run for other groups too sometime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so very good. Uh, so now back into shout outs. Uh, Caleb, you mentioned uh, something you want to give a shout out to. Uh, Spectrum? Uh, yeah, Spectrum 22 just came out uh, and I get them every year from my dad basically as yeah. a Christmas presents because he's an artist. Uh, and uh, it's their collections like huge coffee table books uh, with glossy pages of contemporary fantasy and speculative art so you'll have like Covers of different novels and stuff from uh, comic books. Uh, they'll also have like commercial stuff, and it's basically an awards book of people selected in the different categories with the best winners. Uh, and they're these big, thick, uh, very <coughs> beautiful coffee table books. Um, good for looking for art styles that you like if you're trying to do art direction and stuff like that. Uh, but they are pretty expensive because they are glossy and nice and pretty to look at. But Ooh. That sounds cool. They are pretty fun. So if you like looking at the pretty pictures in RPGs, uh, but don't ever get around, I to, do. Don't ever get around <laughs> to playing them. Uh, you could just, you know, I think we're all guilty of that. You could yeah. just cut to the chase and get the pretty pictures because uh, it's front to back pretty pictures. So 
Uh, yeah, uh, Aaron, of course, you've been watching some TV. Uh, uh yeah, uh, the main one I will go for since, uh, it was, it, uh, premiered last Halloween is, uh, the triumphant return of the Evil Dead series on stars under the title of Ash vs. Evil Dead. Um, this is, uh, fully produced by, uh, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, uh, although I forget the names of the gentleman who's show running and directing it, but, um... Yeah, it uh, is taking place after Evil Dead 2. I think the way that they set the storyline up is that uh, Army of Darkness either didn't happen, or if they did, they're going to reference it in some other way. But uh, Ash is just schlubbing about in his uh, middle to uh, late years now in a trailer working at a not S-Mart. It's another other brand off of it. And uh, one night while he's hooking up with some random woman who likes poetry decides, hey, I'm going to read from the Necronomicon Ex Mortis. This can't have any problems, and of course it does. So uh, he ends up getting the uh, some of his co-workers killed, his co-workers' parents killed, and now has to go stop the evil that he has unwittingly unleashed again, because as Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi have said, Ash is just an idiot, and he's gonna Ash, take it. you can't read from the Necronomicon. Ash, that kills up. people! But, but the writing is as sharp as it was in any of the normal Sam Raimi productions. He directed the first episode. Every one of the new actors is great. Bruce Campbell is always amazing, as usual. And uh, they did drag in a couple of seniors, including Lucy Lawless, who... Um, uh, it's like is playing a related character to the series who I, that I will not spoil here. So. Nice, uh, sounds very good. Uh, we'll have to take a take a gander at it. Uh, I want to give a, a shout out to uh, actually first. Uh, I want to mention a movie uh, that I watched recently, Bone Tomahawk, <laughs> uh, which is the second best Western starring Kurt Russell to be released this year. I'm guessing. I haven't seen The Hateful Eight yet. Uh, but, I mean, Tarantino, is it, that's a hard act to follow. Did it already come out? Or well, something? I'm just saying, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. I don't think it's out yet. Okay. I, I'm guessing it's going to be better than Bone Tomahawk. But, I mean, Bone Tomahawk has set a high threshold because it's a really good movie. Uh, it's also... Whoa! Talk about gore. Like, there's the thing. It's it's just a crazy movie in terms of its structure too, because it's a very kind of leisurely paced western, uh, western horror, weird western horror film where it the first act is like forty minutes long, and they don't even get to the inciting incident until then. They're just kind of like, here are these characters. They're just kind of lounging about. And here's the sh- Kurt Russell's the sheriff. Um, Richard Jenkins is his deputy, who's like kind of the comic relief. Well, definitely the comic relief. And uh, then Matthew Fox, you know, uh, the, that guy from Lost. Uh, he got, he's the the uh, jaded uh, gun gunfighter type. And then Patrick Wilson is the husband of a woman who's kidnapped by cave cannibals. Let's just they're they're cannibal cave people. Uh, they get a, 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 a Indian scout's like, tell us where these guys are. He's like, no. Like why not? I don't want to die. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I'll tell you where they are, but it's the you know the Valley of Starving Men. Don't we we, we don't go there, and uh, they don't have language. Uh, hey, they, they're pre-lingual. <laughs> pre-lingual. Uh, so you might want to watch it. Uh, <laughs> nice, uh, damn it. But yeah, actually, no. Holy shit, that they tie into God's teeth so well. It's scary. <laughs> uh, and so it's about these uh, these four guys who go out to rescue the woman. Uh, and the uh, another deputy who'd been kidnapping these cave cannibals to for you know dinner later on, uh, but and so there's a lot of conversation, there's a lot of dialogue as they're just kind of moseying towards their destiny, and uh, and so it's a little kind of the same vibe of No Country for Old Men that that kind of thing, but like 
I don't know. It's it, There's not much gore in a movie, but when they do have gore, it's, whoa, what the fuck? It is super gore. Yeah, because so, I remember you telling me, you discussing this with there's me. There's that and they one said, scene. Yeah, that one scene where you, of course... I don't horror, describe it horror at all, fan. Yeah. yeah, horror fan jaded towards any yeah. kind of effects at this point. You even said you stood back and went like, "That's oh, a yeah. little, that's a step too far for me." No, 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 I watched it. I just like, holy shit! Like, I did not, I did not, I was surprised because I didn't expect because up until this point in the movie, they've never really lingered on the gore, so I didn't think they would take it that far. But they do. They were saving it because usually in a horror film, it's you know if it's go- going to be gory or not pretty soon. You know, in the first horror scene they either like a Hitchcock movie the guy just falls over dead after he's shot or stabbed or whatever or, or it's like an scene. Eli Roth thing where they like oh let's see all the skin being peeled off uh, so it's got a great good dialogue it's a, it's, a, it's a great movie great acting Kurt Russell is Kurt Russelling the fuck out of things uh, and that's what you want out of Kurt Russell he, I know right <laughs> like uh, I want Snake Plissken damn it yeah so it's it's a it's an entertaining movie, but yeah, be forewarned. You need a high threshold for gore, or at least somebody else who can tell you when just, to start looking at the screen. Just again don't be eating for that during one this. scene. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, that that's my review of it. I hope that helps. <laughs> uh, let's see, Caleb, you saw a movie too, right? Uh, uh, yes, yeah, Spotlight. Uh, so it's by the guy who wrote Zodiac for David Fincher. He's directing yeah. now. Um, and it is about the 2001 investigative journalism team that broke the uh, Boston, Massachusetts Catholic Church child molestation scandal, yeah. uh, which in turn broke it across the world. Um, and so it is a excellent investigative journalism uh, movie, uh, like up there with all the president's men. Uh, it is very well researched. Um, very realistic in how they uncover it, and some great acting. Uh, Michael Keaton's in it. Lee Schreiber, uh, who plays the Hulk now. What's his name? Oh, Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo's in it, um, and yeah, everybody's just kind of killing it, performance-wise. Did and, it come out this year? Yeah, yeah, okay. I saw it at the Moxie. So, okay. um, <laughs> yeah, it was. It's just an excellent, excellent movie. Gut wrenching. Uh, Stanley Tucci, who I adore already, he can do no wrong. Just, just fucking kills it as this. Uh, Armenian lawyer who's not doing class action. He's doing individual cases against the church uh, b- before the investigative journalists find him and kind of help him out with bringing in the press. But uh, he just plays this just irredeemable asshole of a man. Just insufferable. Like, hard to watch on screen because he's not even, like, entertainingly abusive. Yeah. Like, he's just, like, dismissive and eye-rolly and, like... Of everyone on the screen, and by the end of it, though, you realize, holy crap, he's a Delta Green character because, like, <laughs> he's the best character in the movie in terms of like morality and stuff. Because even the journalists have like ulterior motives for doing it. It's very interesting, but his soul has just been ground to dust by his job, and he just keeps it. So, like, like he's just this single dude who hates everyone and eats soup alone in the park. In between, like, managing, like, 90 child molestation cases. And it was just, like, a really brilliant acting choice, among many, because Keaton kills it as well. Uh, yeah, they do a really good job of it. So, uh, not not like, a, not like a fun afternoon movie. No. Not, not, definitely not uplifting, but there are some uh, very cool shots of it. Uh, one, of the, one of the investigative journalists... Um, is going through the diocese records, which is how historically how they found because they found codes in the placements of diocese records for the child molestation, like sick with leave 
unassigned stuff like that where uh, Naira actually meant that and meant they were being moved and shuffled um, so they there's a big part of the movie where they're just pouring over these basically phone book directories all, the, all this kind of stuff and there's a scene where uh, the guy's going over through the phone book directories and they're they're using with rulers and he's in the middle of his house at night and he he just stands up and they don't explain what's happening he just stands up and runs out of his house and it's a it's like a long tracking shot of him like through the Boston streets and like three in the morning in the suburbs and he's just running from street to street like shooting his head around and he gets like a block away and he just looks at this house and you realize that the house was in the the records and like one of them's living a block away from his kids oh. and it's just like like it's just really tastefully done and uh, really dramatic so uh, makes me want to run a drama system game where everyone's in an investigative like because that's the cool thing I didn't know about that the Boston Globe team that found it was basically like a black ops journalist team (laughs) like they had only they only addressed the editor they didn't work with anyone else they didn't have to turn in any stories they weren't on any deadlines it's basically just work it until it's done and don't tell anyone what you're doing until it's done. Uh, and that's how they broke it. And I'm just like, oh, God, that'd be an awesome drama system game. Like, you are just deep cover journalists. <laughs> like, you don't have guns, but, like, it is all about don't get found out before it's in print. Uh, so pretty impressive stuff. Wow. That sounds that's, amazing. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, no, it sounds uh, – I'm sold. I'm a, 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 not, a, not a sunny afternoon. Uh, no, uh, no. Sunny, be a, sunny afternoon, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't expect to be in a good mood afterwards. Yeah. Uh, Watch my neighbor Totoro afterwards. Uh, or not. Uh, the <laughs> – uh, well, speaking of anime, okay, uh, Aaron, yes. you saw an anime thing. Uh, yes, actually, uh, this. Uh, well, yeah, if, yeah. Are you really surprised? Uh, so, no, I'm not. Well, um, but as you, any of you know, I am a giant robot nerd. I love that. And uh, this year saw the uh, entry into the first proper Gundam series we've had in a while, uh, Mobile Suit Gundam Iron Blooded Orphans. Um, this differs a little bit from the last couple se- series because they've done uh, the. Gundam Build Fighter series, which were more just toy advertisements. They're great in their own right because they're just fun, but this is the first one to go back to the kind of the serious drama that the, that's known for, and it has turned out to be really excellent so far. Uh, the base of this is, is that uh, Earth has, of course, been in space for centuries now, uh, but the... Earth's always been in space. Yeah. Well, I'm saying centuries well, instead of maybe like a hundred years. Well, I don't or so. know what you mean. Earth has always been in space. Like, sorry, what, yeah, sorry. Earth you... civilization has always been. Ex- oh, okay. Excuse me. Slight difference. So, no, it's another dimension. <laughs> so, but Earth civilization has been space, but they do not have the main colonies. It seems to be uh, split bet- primarily between Earth and colonies that are on Mars. Mars has been more or less completely terraformed. Okay. Uh, but it's set within smaller corporations who are just run everything around the planet and are subsisting primarily off of child labor. Uh, they find kids who, whose parents were immigrating to Mars, either died or uh, couldn't find work or just orphaned for other reasons, and swoop them up into these corporations where they can be used as, at best, indentured servants or worst, complete slaves. And as part of the uh, they are almost all of them are li- uh, implanted with invasive uh, collars that will allow them to link into the machines. And the whole story goes with this one group who essentially takes over their unit and manages when they manage. So they're going Spartacus. Yeah, pretty okay. much Spartacus by finding a uh, Gundam, one of the old, old variants of that uh, 
in that's been powering their station, rebuild it, and try to run the revolt okay. from there. So uh, it sounds interesting. It yeah, it's a very one. It's I want to say the subtitle is like Kingdom Hearts game level stupid. It's no 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 no. no. It's Channel A awesome. No, no, no. Like Iron Blooded Orphan sounds like something from a Channel A game. Yeah, no, that would have won. Almost it's like almost equal to C. Yeah, and, and I would actually say this Caleb um cuz I know you're not the fan that I am of anime or any of that. This is one I would honestly recommend to you just because of how down and earth and gritty it is. Cuz of enslaved kids, am I right? Yeah. I know when I think down to I'm earth I'm building a reputation for that <laughs> yay uh, <laughs> I know when I think down to earth narratives I do think on a terraform Mars uh, so. <laughs> but don't think of the actual series terraform Mars because yeah. no okay uh, I didn't know that was serious but anyways <laughs> um, and then finally uh, I do have to mention the music I'll be using uh, this is from a vaporwave artist uh, r23x <laughs> Uh, this is the album is called Soundtrack MP3 Torrent, uh, <laughs> and it actually sounds kind of. It is actually. It's actually. I would even call it vaporwave. Like it's not like mall soft or something like that. It, it's. Uh, it sounds more like the not quite video game music, but kind of like weird. It's kind of channeling that vibe. Uh, so it does sound a little bit like a Final Fan early Final Fantasy game or. Uh, video game kind of music. It's more, more post vaporwave. It's not like music me, elevated music. <laughs> I'm trying to. to you just unironically, yeah. in a sentence in English, yeah. use the term post vaporwave. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, yeah, are you gonna move? To, are you gonna move God. to future funk like the rest of the same people? Uh, future funk is is fine. It's not the only it's the evolution. So, uh, Groovy Godzilla is a future funk artist. I just stop. Okay, well I'll stop. So because we have uh, anecdotes, instead of doing like one particular story from one particular scenario, I thought we'd give a little sampler of the games we've been playing recently and recording. So things that you can be looking for in the future. So Caleb. Uh, you could tease us on what the listeners can expect when God's Teeth, because uh, we, we recorded three more episodes of it already. Yes. Uh, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about God's Breath and God's Legs? Uh, so God's Breath, they find uh, something very wrong in the legal marijuana industry in Denver, uh, Colorado, and yeah. they have to... Uh, take some extreme actions in what is the most regulated, most watched industry in the country right now. Um, so and you did some research for this. like I did quite a bit of research. Uh, I watched a lot of documentaries about it and, and read up on it. Uh, so basically, it's a it's like the wire, only the organizing you're tracing is pretty much entirely legal. Uh, and so it's trying to find the illegal parts, uh, trying to make and then trying to make those illegal parts look sane and part of our reality um and so justifying that um in the second one i gave you a bunch of cannon fodder and in the second t- part of that same adventure. yeah second part of the same adventure, so adventure. we we added right. two characters uh back into the game actually we added three new characters and one new player back into the game um and so it ran a little long and yeah in the second one uh i gave you a bunch of cannon fodder to <laughs> Uh, participate in the raid because it was important and they wouldn't just send you guys. But I wanted to make it like, okay, don't just spin them frivolously. Like, yeah. So I gave them all names and detailed personalities and all reactions and that 
did nothing to stop them from just feeding them into the meat grinder intentionally <laughs> as useless pawns. So if you want to hear... They Ro- were far from useless. Yeah, if you want to hear Ross's character just... And it's, as, it's almost as if you got confused when you were like, yeah, no, you're bait. <laughs> and they were like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And, and you're like, wait, why not? I don't... I don't understand. So there's a good 30 minutes of role playing where like oh, you know, between- the sociopathic PCs just <laughs> can't understand why these people don't want to go out there without support to die. Oh, well, no, because um, uh, we tried to set up for support and to make sure that they were going through, but then, of course, I got we berated and failed roles. Yeah, yeah. We, we, there were there, certain things happened. Uh, yeah. A certain uh, sense of something. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did try to send one of them out in deep cover with no backup whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we we eventually gave her backup. And that, yeah, it worked well, great. Yeah. And to be honest, I was... Uh, Again, that was the things we weren't expecting, yeah. all right? Uh, and to be yeah. honest, I with that uh, backup, I was willing to go with it. I just didn't know how you were going to split the team up at that point. Or- so I... Didn't want to split anything up. Uh, it was up to us. That was yeah. up to okay. you guys. Uh, and then God's Legs is basically a uh, locked room mystery adventure. Uh, but I Where my special in, forces guy was very useful. I ran into a playtest uh, issue in that I, I think it would work very well as the first adventure of a Delta Green campaign. But as everyone was extremely paranoid already it became the problem of how them to get into the room that they all obviously knew was haunted and going to kill them which I managed to do through hours of psychologically manipulating both the PCs and the players themselves uh, so that was interesting a lot to, of try note passing. And, to try and do a lot of note passing a lot, a lot of, of note passing. a lot of paranoia a lot of guns being held to other PCs heads but it worked out because it worked out they went into the crazy room not and, all of us yeah. but someone did yeah so I could do the majority of stuff I've written uh, so by god you went in that fucking room <laughs> took a little longer than I'd hoped <laughs> but You're welcome. They went in the room, uh, and some story happened. <laughs> Yay! Uh, story. Which was the problem before that? Uh, no, there was still a story. I mean, we, yeah. there, there, yeah. like we, yeah. Uh, it worked out. It, it was worked just, out. It was very tenuous. I will need to tweak that before it is fully. Do you, do you feel like we were just running around? Avoiding I don't think it. just anyone could run that. I, uh, yeah, you definitely need something playtesting uh, yeah. from other groups uh, with just written stuff. It's very fourteen oh eight because yeah, that was a very idiosyncratic based on because I know other players that would just sprint from the plot yeah as fast as possible and oh, then yeah. and then blame their GM for not having. A game. Uh, I would, it I, wasn't you guys. Yeah, yeah. I know other groups would do. Okay. That. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, let's see. <laughs> so that's something you could be thinking about, uh, or that I got accused of railroading for the first session of Better Angels because it was set in a school. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The setting is a school. When did <laughs> for legitimately every adventure, it's yeah. on the cover. When did yeah. this rail? No, I don't want to go to school. <laughs> Why are you? All right, the setting space. Yeah. It's in space now. It's a space school. Yeah. yeah. I this, don't want to be in space. Well, when did this railroading occur? Oh, <laughs> that was playtesting feedback. Yeah. Wasn't okay. It? Okay. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. If if that's yeah, where do you want to go? If Austria. The, if the going to the plot is a railroading, uh, yeah. then that will need some work. But it worked out. It worked out. It worked out. Uh, we've been playing some other games. Uh, as I mentioned on the Facebook group, uh, I've run Monster of the Week. Uh, which mm-hmm. is an apocalypse world game. Uh, it had one very good session with, uh, let's see, Aaron, uh, Faust, and, and Sean. Sean. 
And uh, it was set in Taos, New Mexico, because that was the place they decided to set Ooh, it. The Taos uh, Hum. Uh, and <coughs> I based the adventure uh, on, uh, let's see, a book I had found called Stories for Good Children, which was like written in 1905. It has some creepy-ass illustrations of fucking monsters eating, attacking children and shit like that. Because that's how they thought children would be. Like, oh, here, you want a bedtime story? Here's some that's, terrifying That's how it'll comfort monsters. you. Yeah. This will comfort you. It is some original Grimm's Terry fairy tale level shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's all public domain because it's written in Every story ends in cannibalism or yeah. some child being <laughs> uh, This is actually literally uh, a thing. Uh, okay. Well, it was all de- de- designed to say, stay in your room, don't question the norms, <laughs> or you will die. Pretty much. Uh, so the adventure involved the dreamlands, the Cthulhu mythos, and... Uh, Creepy stories, <laughs> and uh, Aaron's character was not was a not not Ghostbuster, a not not Ghostbuster. Yeah. I wanted I, I wanted uh, to say I wasn't the, the Ghostbusters, I wasn't the real Ghostbusters, I was the true Ghostbusters. Uh, no, yeah, for copyright reasons. Yeah. Uh, so uh, then um, uh, Faust played a wizard basically, and then uh, Sean's character played a uh, what the, in the the playbook is called the expert. Basically, he had a trunk full of uh, occult artifacts he could pull out. And use and I think the one anecdote I do want to mention is at one point uh, you use your gadgets to there are there's a horde of moonmen that attack a toy store. <laughs> yes, uh, the moonmen, the moonmen, <laughs> and these are like 1905 or circa moonmen, so they basically look like deep ones, uh, froggy deep ones, and you use your de- gadget to look like their empress queen. Yeah, because what I did and, is I had I have I my character had options from his sheet to where he could have uh, a van. Yeah. So I just loaded it up with it that it was fast and it also had a lot of tech in it. So uh, while uh, Sean and Faust were distracting the others, um, I created a hologram of their queen <laughs> to try to get them uh, to at least explain the situation to them. Uh, but you rolled really well, so you basically wound up with five Moonmen red shirt minions. Yes. Uh, that... <laughs> Were then they did not admit, no no they did they, not end well they were they were the red moment. shirts all the way and I they was were, very they, sad they followed that tradition proudly yeah and so that, that that's a game to look forward to yes uh, and then of course Tom has run his first adventure for uh, the Draconis game mm-hmm. uh, where we were troubleshooters on Mars uh, investigating a murder. And, oh, like a lot, uh, a lot of murders. One, <laughs> yeah, it was one place. A lot of people got murdered, and it uh, it was cool because it involved at one point Sean's character had to jump from a flying car to a skyscraper eighty five stories up, so through a window, through yeah. a window, so he could have died. And, yeah, he was first, confident. It's a short then, adventure. Yeah, he was confident, and then uh, like. Yeah. Was it Sean who was like, oh, I can make that jump too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was Sean who did that. Like, uh, yeah. So well, see, yeah, Steve did it first. Yeah, Steve did it first. Well, he's a ninja. Yeah. So of course, but yeah, Steve, Sean's like, no, I can do this. Yeah. Uh, I told. I even told him, like, yeah, if you roll a crit, you're dead. Or failure, crit failure. Well, if you roll a crit fail, you're dead. Yeah. Like, okay, I like those odds. <laughs> There's more pregens. <laughs> so that's what they look forward to as well. So uh, we have a lot of games going on uh, right now. Uh, of course, oh, also the Dresden Files. Uh, Dan is still running that. Our latest adventure did involve a heist in Branson, stealing occult artifacts from Yakov Smirnov. Uh, oh, God. I'm just imagining anyone who doesn't know RPGs listening to the past 20 minutes of this conversation just being... <laughs> Thoroughly perplexed. <laughs> we have a stupefying number and variety of games being played right now. Yeah, we do. All for you, listeners. All <laughs> for you. It's always uh, for you. Yeah. 
but yeah, so you have look, uh, you can look, be looking forward to that uh, as well. So uh, I guess that's it for uh, this episode. So uh, hey, this has been RPBR episode one twenty two. It takes a village to carry my inventory. I'm Ross Payton. I'm Tom Church. I'm Aaron Carson. Caleb. Yay! <laughs> we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Favorite way. Future rock.